hey, I just wanted to say I'm, I'm, I'm with you guys in that same space that uh, Jim opened up with, which is, you know, getting to the end of this and wanting so badly to be with folks again, to be hanging out um, and, uh, and actually to see people in the flesh, right? So Zoom and whatever other video conferencing uh, technology comes out, it's all fine. It's good. It helps a lot. We appreciate it deeply. But there's something about being with people. And so I look forward to, to that and us getting back together. Um, and, uh, uh, and so this morning, as we look into Romans, I do have that on my mind. And it's even though Romans chapter 9 isn't directly addressing these issues that we're dealing with right now in this moment, um, I, think it's, um, I think it does have something to say about this idea of is God is faithful, which is the big question that is being asked throughout Romans. It's asked in Romans chapter 3 for, for, uh, for, for sure. It's very clear there. But it's also asked here in Romans 9, is God faithful? You know, where is God in the situation? You know, if there's any solidarity we can have with people that Paul was writing to was the big question of, okay, so we've been following this Jesus figure and it's led us to a lot of problems. And, you know, you talk about social isolation. Many of them had experienced that, you know, being cut off from friends because they were now followers of Jesus. And that wasn't a popular thing to do in the first century. And so they experienced that being alone, feeling lonely, feeling cut off from people. And uh, oftentimes being really tempted to go back to just kind of like, well, What's the big deal? Let's just give up on this whole Jesus thing just so we can get back in with our friends. So uh, we can experience um, some, I guess, connection with the first century in that way. Um, <clears throat> let's look at Romans 9. And um, how many of you, by the way, read Romans 9? And I'm looking at your faces. Uh, how many of you got a chance to read Romans chapter 9? Wow, that's an overwhelming number of you. This is incredible. Um, I think one of you raised your hand, Romans chapter nine. Okay. <laughs> uh, I don't blame you. Romans nine is, uh, not the most appealing chapter to read. Uh, and if you tried it, you probably got like, Whoa, I don't, I don't like Paul right now. I liked him last week. I didn't like him the week before when we covered chapter seven, which is all this stuff about like, things I want to do, I don't do. And maybe you related and you were okay with it. Some of you probably didn't like that. And then you get to Romans eight and it's like, all right, Paul, now we're talking. And now we're in Romans nine and you're going, Oh, what is with this guy? Is he bipolar or something? Uh, maybe we don't know. Uh, sure, certainly could have been, but here, uh, Paul does take it in a dark place. Uh, it appears. Um, and so let's take a look at this and we're going to work section by section because it is a very complicated passage. And I'm not going to give you everything. I'd love to give you a ton of stuff here, but we don't have time. And so we're going to go through it um, and uh, as quickly as we can to move through it. But with the me with what I really want to do is get the meaning out of this um, and, uh, and, and, and draw from that and apply it to our lives. And then if you have questions, particularly about some of the weird sayings in there that Paul says, don't be afraid to ask. Glad to do our best to answer that. Um, and even our answers will be uh, the best that we can offer at this point. And we're always learning and growing. So um, let's start with Romans chapter 9 at verse 1. 
And I'm going to share this screen with you so you can see it. And then I will stop sharing so you can see me. Uh, let's see, where are we? I think this is it right here. Okay, Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple, worship, and promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So you can hear Paul's grief there um, because of what was going on, that much of geopolitical, and at that time it was really not really much of a political, I mean, it did have that, but they were uh, under um, the control and the governance of Rome. Uh, but they were still thinking in those terms, geopolitical Israel and uh, what had happened to her. So verse six, it is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. <laughs> On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Um, yeah, how does that sound to you? <laughs> but, you know, you, you, so for so this is for some. It's actually like, yeah, I, I totally, I totally believe that. And the church is actually has been split for uh, hundreds of years now over this issue of whether God does pick people to go to heaven and other people He sends to hell. It's His choice. Like, I, that there's nothing you can do about it. I have chosen. People will go to hell, and people go to heaven. I have friends that believe that. I have pastor friends who believe that. And, uh, and it's remarkable because I'll, I will ask, where do you see God's mercy and, ju and justice in that? And for them, their answer is, 
we don't know the mind of God. We are not God. We just simply have to accept it as it is. And Romans 9 says God picks some to go to heaven and some, you know, uh, theoretically to go to heaven. You know, it's not specifically to go to heaven, but God chooses some uh, for glory, as, as Paul says, and some for destruction. So, okay. So that's where we, where we start. Um, <clears throat> I'm never going to be able to address this fully. But what I can do in this moment is to actually turn our eyes to the actual question that Paul is trying to answer. Right? That's, not the, that's not a mystery here. We actually know what question he's trying to answer because he said it. Right? His first question here is um, in uh, verse 1, or excuse me, verse 6. And it is not as though God's word had failed, right? So that's the first thing he says. It is not as though God's word had failed. Why is he saying that? Because that's the question. <laughs> did God's promise, a word is the same thing, the idea of did God's word, did God's promise to Israel fail, right? He's asked that question in Romans 3. He's going to play it out again. Remember, the way that Paul and the ancient writers wrote was very much not linear. Though that's the way we write, from, from beginning to end, to conclusion. Not the ancient writers. They're far more clever, I think, in many ways than we are today. Uh, they knew that the best entrance to the heart is not straight in. It's around the back door. <laughs> and that's what you try to do is you try to catch people. Movie writers do that all the time. So what you're trying to do is, and by the way, comedians do that as well. It's, you don't come right at people. You, you come in through surprising them. And so what Paul is doing is he's layering things, ideas upon ideas, and developing them throughout the book of Romans. So he's already asked the question about faithfulness earlier. He's going to ask it in a different way and, and, and deal with it in a different way. So the question is, has God's word failed? That's the big question. In other words, has God promised to Israel to save Israel? Failed. So, so what's he drawing from? The Old Testament. The Old Testament is Paul's Bible. And the New Testament is not Paul's Bible. It's the Old Testament. Right? So Paul is going to the Old Testament saying, what do we know? <laughs> we know that Israel uh, was sent into exile because of her, what, her oppression of the poor, her idolatry, her sexual immorality, which was like, you know, in, included in cultic worship. It was part of the whole cultic worship experience. The, so all of this was all the reasons for their rebellion, consistent rebellion. It wasn't even their sin. It was their rebellion, their consistent stubbornness that God says, finally, I'm going to send you into exile. That's what the prophets are saying, God said. I'm going to send you into exile, um, and, uh, and you will be there for a while. But God's promise is, I won't leave you there. I'm going to take you out, and I'm going to redeem you, and I'm going to make you a great nation again. I'm going to save you through a Messiah, and you will become great once again. That's God's promise in the Old Testament. And Paul's question that he's answering for the people is, what happened to that promise? Did God give up? Because clearly we're not there. Right? So what do, what do we do? And so what Paul does is he starts to say, okay, I'm going to play out two, two, two ideas here that, you're, that, that, are, that are at play here. One is geopolitical Israel, Jewish people, ethnic Jewish people, because that's how they conceived of the promise is for what? Jewish ethnic people. It's not the promise is not for Gentiles, it's for them. They're the chosen people, right? You're with me. They're the chosen race by God. To sh God has shown them favor above every other nation. Right? So 
Now it's this play between ethnic Israel and what Paul is starting to do, which is non-ethnic Israel. The church, the people of God. And these two are coming together and they're creating a problem. It's a, it's a sort of a clash, right? They're having a problem wrestling with it because they're saying, well, the promises are to ethnic Israel. <laughs> and Paul is saying, yes, but God's promise is not and never was just for ethnic Israel. Even though that's the way you saw it in the Old Testament. So what's Paul doing? He's taking the Old Testament promises and he's reimagining them. He's taking them and reimagining them because of what he saw that Jesus did in his lifetime, in his life, his death and resurrection. And he's saying something has changed. And do you have eyes to see that? Right. So it's not as though God's word of faith. So that this is why it makes sense of some of this other the other examples where he says, it's not as though God's word has failed. Right. And then you remember me reading this part where he says, not all of Abraham's children are Abraham's children in the way that you would expect, is essentially what he's saying. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, not children by physical descent who are God's children. Well, that doesn't make sense because Isaac is a physical descent of Abraham, <laughs> right? But what Paul is doing is he's saying, yeah, but I'm reimagining this text. I'm taking it out of what you would have presumed, which was you're all descendants of Isaac. You're all descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You're all descendants of that, right? But here's the thing. Did you notice that this whole, uh, you know, this whole idea of, of, um, uh, of, of Isaac versus Ishmael was that Isaac was born by promise, meaning that Abraham and Sarah could not have children. And so that's the thing. It's like God is, Paul is saying, see, God chose, and it's not by human effort. And, if, and, and this is the mistake that oftentimes many of us make, is to believe that somehow we deserved it. How many of you have reframed your stories from like, um, you know, you got, you, you got something wonderful that happened to you, and then you and initially, it's just like surprise, shock, like, I don't know how I got this gift or this blessing. But then later on, you start to change it, and it starts to look like you had something to do with it. This happens all the time. We retell stories, and we retell them with like, well, what happened was, you know, I, I was thinking this, and then this happened, and then after that, I decided I was going to do this. And, and we start to do that, and, and we've, we've edited out the mystery and the grace and the miracle that it had nothing to do with us. And oftentimes we stumble into blessing. We did nothing to deserve it. It is pure gift. And this is what Paul is saying, is that God chose you. It was not by normal and, and physical, you know, the, the normal process by work, but it was by gift. And so when we get to this part here, um, where he moves on and says, uh, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And he's quoting. Uh, from, from the Hebrew scriptures, from the Old Testament. And that he raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose that he might display his power. Um, this is the stuff. My screen just went uh, kooky here. What is going on here? Hang on. There we are. Okay. Something changed. Um, 
So what is happening here is that God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. And, uh, and he's drawing on that analogy to say, see, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did so as a way to show uh, mercy on the Israelites. And now what Paul is suggesting is that maybe God has hardened the ethnic Jewish people's hearts in order that he might not only show mercy to the Gentiles, but it was to also provoke them that maybe somehow I can provoke you people to see that I want to love more than just you, that I want to choose and love many others. But you have hardened your own heart. And therefore, Paul also says, it's interesting, there's this like interplay between and paradox really between us hardening our hearts and God hardening our hearts. It's like, it's, it's our resistance is met by God saying, fine, <laughs> I will also add to that. And, and, and so that you can see how dark darkness really is and maybe then turn. And so God is hardening the hearts. <clears throat> and as Paul is saying, is God is hardening the heart of the Jews in order to provoke them to a place of jealousy that they might say, hey, I want to, yeah, I, I, okay, I want to come back home. And in case you think that this is about Jews and, and, and uh, ethnic Jews, it's about us. It's about us, folks. This is what's happening right now. You know, I watch as, as uh, <clears throat> friends of mine, I watch my own heart as well, and I can see it at times happening. But we get so hardened, and, uh, and what happens when we are, when we feel like the promises aren't happening, they're not coming to us. We can become hurt. We can then become bitter, and then we can become hardened in our hearts. And then we start standing on uh, our, our sort of systems and religion um, as our foundation. Like, well, this is the truth, and, and, um, and I'm standing on it regardless of what's, you know, what the reality is. We sort of dig ourselves in, and instead of holding on to truth as like, this is the promise that I hope, and it comes from a heart of desire, it comes from a heart of love, it comes from a heart of connection with God, that we start to lose that, and instead we just dig in and become stubborn. And I'm watching as this is happening, and it is sad to me because it's happening uh, to me as well um, at, at times. So I have to deliberately go in the other direction. You know? um, let's read on. <clears throat> Verse 16, um, he says, now let me share the screen with you guys here. <clears throat> Verse 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but of God's mercy. Oh, we just, uh, yeah, we just read that. So verse 19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? <clears throat> what if uh, God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction, 
what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, uh, actually I'll pause here because I want to um, get to that juicy part in, in verse 25 in a second. So this complicated section from 16 to 24 um, is uh, the best I can say about this section right now without getting uh, too deep into some of the rhetorical devices or communication tools that were used in those days. We use them today, such as when we say, when pigs fly or threading a needle. Um, those, are, those are not to be taken literally. Those are communication devices to communicate another point. Without getting into all of that, um, this section seems to me at very least to be saying that this is based on, as what we just said, this is based on God's uh, mercy, God's desire to, um, to, to save, and his raising up one and at times hardening a group of people who have hardened their own hearts, right? And, um, and this whole language of making some uh, clay that is used for special purposes and some for common purposes, all of that is very, very contextual. I think a special purposes and common use has a difference between utensils um, used uh, if, that were that were used only for ceremonies in the uh, in the uh, ancient Jewish faith versus the ones that were used for every day. And what Paul is uh, pulling from that, I think, is saying that. Uh, right now, you Jews have seen yourself as God's chosen, always have seen yourself as God's chosen, and seen yourself as the people through whom God, uh, you know, God would raise you up and, and, um, and bless you, and, um, and you were the special and others were the common, and maybe what God is doing is to say, I'm flipping that right now, not to say to you that you're rejected, but to say that uh, that while you're hardened in this state right now, I'm hardening your heart only so that you can wake up once again and come home. And, 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 I, and that's sometimes what has to happen, is that when we resist and we become stubborn and rebellious, that God increases, as I said earlier, God increases that heat, increases the darkness so we can see the full darkness of it. The reason why I can read this into this text right here is because that is what happens in Romans 10, and that's what happens in Romans 11. And that, those three chapters are a section, 9, 10, and 11. And when you read in 11, get, he, he says, I think in verse 23, that God has turned everyone over to disobedience so that he can have mercy on everyone. And in Romans 10, he says, all who call on the name of the Lord, every last one of you will be saved. And so this is the heart of God, is to, is to pull people in. In fact, in 11, he says, I actually provoked my, the Jewish people. I want to provoke them to jealousy so that they might turn. I mean, this is the heart of God. It's I want all people to come. And sometimes when we are in our own darkness, we actually need to see how dark it is before we're going to get out. How many of you heard like hitting rock bottom? You know, and, and how sometimes people enable other people to stay just above rock bottom. When sometimes the greatest gift you can give to somebody is to say, I can't be that life preserver for you anymore. You have to actually face the full consequences of your actions in order to then finally decide you're going to stop and you're going to turn and you're going to, you're going to return to a healthy you. 
Does that make sense? And this is this is like this is right. We know this about uh, about ourselves. And I think this is what's going on with God. Is this is the heart of God? Like I'm gonna. You have rejected. You've resisted. You continue to do evil. So I have to increase darkness in you. I have to harden your heart so that you can see just how dark darkness really is. Um, and then in verse 25, <coughs> as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Oh, do you see the heart of God in this? Like, I am going to go out and call those who are not mine, I'm going to call them mine. And, 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 and so I, I, I ask you, would you join in with God and begin to call people who are not God's people, God's people? I mean, can you, could you see what would happen if we were living from that space, from that heart? When you do this, you begin to warm up cold hearts. When you begin to say to people who are not God's people, you are a child of God and God loves you. When you begin to treat them as if they are God's people, and I can't, I'm not there to judge and neither are you to say who are the people that are responding to God's love and who is not. I mean, you can kind of see that, right? But, the, but this is the, the, the magnificence of this passage right here. These are, these are people, God is saying, I am calling people who are not my people, my people. Is that we are joining, we get to join in that and begin to do that. To say to, the, to people that are not his, you are God's child. And if you choose to respond to that, you can access all of the grace that comes with that, right? This is why the prodigal, the story of the prodigal son is probably the most comprehensive analogy of, of, of salvation. It is, it is so magnificent that it is oftentimes referred to and alluded to um, throughout Scripture, even not directly, but all the concepts are derived from that. It's like, you know, the, the love of the father always going out, always going out day after day, looking for the child that has walked away, right? It's this prodigal, wasteful love. And, and, and it's up to, to the individual to return to that, right? To fully access the benefits of that love, right? And so when you do this, we're not just calling people who are not God's people, God's people. We're not just doing that as a mechanism to try to win them over. We're doing this because when you begin, not only do you warm up the cold hearts that are out there, right? But just as you can't throw evil and not be soiled yourself, you can't throw love and not be touched by it. This is, this is, you know, we've all heard this, the sayings around, you know, if you throw mud, you're going to, you can't, you know, you're going to get dirty yourself, right? You can't throw evil and not be impacted or dirtied by evil. When you say something evil, when you say something harsh, it hurts you, it darkens you, it affects you, it makes you feel that ugliness internally. You become darkened when you do that. That's why it's, it's very important that what we say 
tends more towards blessing and towards redemption, even when it's truth that's, that's direct, it is for the purpose of winning people back. It is loving at its core. In the same way, we can't throw love out there and blessing out there and call people God's children who are not yet, you know, followers and are not yet t- turned towards God, that when you throw that love out there, you, you yourself are touched by it. It warms you up. You feel that love. And finally, let me just skip for the sake of time to verse 30 and read that part. Oh, wrong, wrong screen here. Share screen right here. Verse 30. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? Remember when we talk about by faith, we're talking about by people who respond like the prodigal son, who return, who go move their lives actively towards God. The people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over a stumbling stone, as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Like at the very least, we can say in relation to this, this passage here, uh, that the people that are on the inside, uh, who oftentimes, the more inside we are, the longer we have been church folks, going to church, orienting our lives towards God, that there's oftentimes, it's wonderful because it's the high side of that, but there's also a low side, that we can become more oriented to systems, to rules. We can also become disillusioned by things that we've asked God for that have not been answered. And so we can become less gracious, less loving, less kind. We can become more entitled because we're insiders. We lose our sense of wonder oftentimes, our sense of awe, of gratitude. This is why the stone that causes people to stumble was the one, and this is what's fascinating about this illustration. The stone that causes people to stumble was the stone that was right in front of them. And it's always that. It's always the case. It's similar, you know, when you're looking for something in the fridge and you can't find it. It's because it's right in front of you, right? Or you're looking for your sunglasses, you can't find them. Your glasses, you can't find them. Where are my glasses? I can't find them. And it oftentimes takes someone else to point out to you where they are. (laughs) It's because it's right in front of you, right? And so we can lose that because it's, it's right here. And oftentimes it's the outsider that sees it. And says, oh my goodness, this is like, this is grace. This is wonderful. So here's what I, 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 I challenge us as insiders, more insiders than the outsiders, is that we do our work is to always return to grace, humility, gratitude. God, thank you. I deserve none of this. Everything that I have is gift. 
Can you say that? Even in this moment, can you say that within your soul, within your heart? Everything I possess, it's all gift, it's all grace. Can, can you say, instead of, uh, oh, I'm the found sheep in that story of the, the lost sheep and the, and the, and the sheep that are, that are found, I, I'm the one who's found. I'm in, that, I'm in that pen. I'm not the one who wandered away. Can you say, no, I'm every day the one who wanders away, and I have a shepherd that keeps on chasing me because that shepherd's love is never failing and never ending, and it will never quit on me. And that's what makes me chosen this morning. I'm not chosen because I'm an insider. I'm not chosen because I was born a Christian, because I was born a Protestant, a Catholic. I'm not chosen because I go to an evangelical church. I'm not chosen because I've done this, that, and the other. I am chosen because I am loved by a father, by a shepherd whose love will never end. He's the one that comes out every day on the road to look for me because I have wandered. And he's the one who waits to say, come back, because everything I have is yours. Can you Turn back to that kind of grace and that kind of God. This is what makes us chosen, folks. It's not the doctrine of election. It's not the doctrine, doctrine of predestination. It's not the doctrine of eternal security. It's the doctrine that God loves me, and I am that wandering sheep that every day he goes out looking for. That's what makes me sure of God's love is because I've, tuned to, I've turned towards it and said yes to it. The prodigal son is the one who is most keenly aware of the love of the father rather than the older son who never left. And this is that, that's the, that's the point of this, is that God's love is always coming towards us. But the question is, are we responding to it with humility, with grace, and with gratitude? And those of us who do are the ones who experience this love in its fullness. God loves calling those who are not his children, his children. And you know what compels you and me to say, yes, I want to call you one of God's children? It's that you and me have received that love and that grace. And now we're saying, oh man, it's good. It's good. You, you, you want a taste to trust me. It's good. It's good. Imagine saying that instead of our communication being about what you should believe, okay, about what you should eat. Man, this is a good meal. I mean, who doesn't want a good meal? Like, who doesn't want something that is incredibly... When, when was the last time? I mean, think about this. You went out... We haven't gone out to eat in forever, right? But when you used to be able to go out to eat, uh, you would say to folks like, hey, I went to this great place. I had this food. It was amazing, right? You, we will share those things. And others will say, oh, that's interesting. I might try that out. Well, it comes from what? It comes from joy. It comes from passion. It comes from something you've experienced. And so we return to the love of a father, of a shepherd, that is always at the edge of the road waiting for us to return home. And so this whole passage on election in chapter 9, I believe, is about ultimately God choosing, and his intention is to choose all. And his hope is that some will respond to that love. And many don't. And many get dark. And many insiders are the ones who've become darkened. And God hardens that in order to cause us to wake up to how dark darkness really is. And come back home to the love of the Father.